Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Simone Riscala, and you are listening to the Endowed Podcast, a conversation not just about the feminine genius in general, but about cultivating your particular feminine genius through the Catholic intellectual tradition and intentional community. Well, hello, Endow Women. I'm so excited today to introduce you to Steve Weidenkampf, who is a church historian, uh, a writer, a professor, and a wonderful husband and father, so I hear, of a wonderful family. And I am so happy because today we're going to talk about the Battle of Lepanto. It is the Feast of Our Lady of the Rosary, also known as Our Lady of Victory. And I have, Professor, I'm so glad that you're with me today because uh, this is an important ballad that I think everyone should should know about as as a as a catholic and i'm so um happy that i took your church history courses when i was in graduate school because actually i don't know if i ever told you this but the after i finished my first year and had taken your church history classes i went to the holy land that summer on pilgrimage and i walked into the church of saint john the baptist in ein Karim, and there was this beautiful mural of uh Don Juan of Austria and the Battle of Lepanto, and I actually knew what it meant, and I felt like I was Indiana Jones or something, discovering something really important historically. So that that really warmed my heart, and knowing what St. John Hospitalers was, and I, if I had gone on that pilgrimage before I had taken your class, I would have missed all of that richness. So please tell us about this important battle in our church history. Yeah, sure. Great. Simone, thanks for having me on the uh, the podcast here and uh, to celebrate this great feast day. And um, yeah, you know, just before we get into that, just a comment on what you said about when you took that pilgrimage and after learning a bit about our church history, how important that really is, right, for, for people, for Catholics. It's so uh, we spend a lot of time as Catholics, I think rightly so, studying our faith, studying the doctrines of our faith, studying scripture, which is all very important. Um, but a lot of times we ignore the history of our faith, right? We don't we don't spend the time learning the story of the men and women who have come before us in faith, and so uh, I think that's vitally important. Um, and it, it it in it, when we learn that story, it not only kind of connects us to those who have come before us, but it, uh, it gives us a sense of identity too, right? So, like you said, you walked into that church, you saw this mural, you knew the background, you knew the story, and so then it resonated with you, and now it stayed with you, right? So. I mean, that's the importance of, of learning our history. So it's, it's exactly why we're, we're talking today about this particular feast day, right? So a lot of people will see this feast day on the liturgical mass. We're celebrating, you know, the Feast of Our Lady of Rosary, and they won't have any understanding as to why the uh, feast is actually on the liturgical calendar. And, and it goes back all the way to the 16th century, the end of the 16th century, and to kind of set the historical stage for what was going on at that period of time. At the end of the 16th century, there was a, a battle, a war, really, for control of the Mediterranean, right? That very important waterway, strategic waterway, has been through, for centuries of human history between the Habsburgs of Spain, the Catholic powers of Europe, and the Ottoman Turks. Uh, and the Ottoman Turks were a group of people who, in the 13th century, had um, taken over what is modern-day Turkey, and who were a very militaristic uh, and imperialistic uh, group of people. Uh, they had in the 15th century that actually made incursions into Eastern Europe, uh, into Bulgaria and into uh, Hungary, and you know even got all the way to the gates of Vienna in 1529, um, but were beaten back. So they were focused on land, 
are focused on trying to control the seaways as well. And so uh, at the end of the 16th century, you had right at the end of um, Suleiman the Magnificent, who was the great Ottoman Turkish ruler during the 16th century. He reigned for almost 50 years. He greatly expanded the Ottoman Empire. He dies in 1566. And so a few years after his death, the Ottomans are trying to look at, well, where can we, how can we gain complete control of the Mediterranean? And not only that, how can we put a dagger into the heart of Christian Europe? How can we completely conquer Europe? And they saw what was going on in Christendom at the time. This is the late 16th century. This is after the beginning of the Protestant Revolution with Luther, a lot of infighting among the, the powers of Europe, the powers of Christendom. And so there's a lot of fracturing and a lot of division. And they thought, the Ottoman Turks, rightly so, that Rome in particular was vulnerable. The city of Rome, the Papal States, Italy, uh, the Kingdom of all these places were very, very um, ripe for the plucking, so to speak. So the, the Ottoman um, Sultan at the time, Selim II, decides to create this great fleet to uh, invade Rome. Uh, and so wind of this invasion force, this, this kind of marshalling of, of Ottoman Turkish galleys and naval, gets back to Rome. The Pope at the time is St. Pius V, and St. Pius V hears of these, this, this impending invasion of the Turks. And so he sends his letters out to all the major uh, leaders of, of Western Europe, of Christian Europe, asking them to help him you know, uh, get together a coalition of forces to fight the Turks. And pretty much everybody ignores him. Um, you know, as I mentioned, this is during the time of the, the you know, height of the Protestant revolt. You've got all these powers that are focused on their own thing and their own the territories. They're uh, against the church in many ways. And so uh, only a few people respond. Actually, really, only the city state of Venice in Italy responds and Spain. That's it. So of the, with those two powers and with the forces of the papal states, his own army navy, the pope then creates this holy league, it's called. So this alliance of forces, of Christian forces, uh, it marshals a fleet, and uh, in the summer, the late summer, early fall of 1571, this Christian fleet sails from Italy uh, and going east or towards the uh, Gulf of Lepanto, which is in Greece, where this invasion force of Turks had uh, marshaled their ships. And under the command of this invasion force was this young, um, brash individual by the name of very daring and dashing individual, handsome man by the name of Don Juan of Austria. Don Juan was the, the illegitimate son of Philip II, the King of Spain. So he was, um, uh, you know, the half-brother of Charles V, uh, the Holy Roman Emperor. He was, uh, you know, a man who was, was 24 years old. I mean, you imagine being 24 years old and being placed in control of 200-plus naval vessels, you know, tens of thousands of sailors and, and of soldiers, and basically the fate of Christendom, the fate of Europe, the fate of even, one could say, maybe, right, and in your hands, temporally speaking at least, in your hands, and you're in charge of all this. And he, he you know, took it upon himself. He trusted in the Lord. He trusted in his own skills and the men underneath him, and he sailed, um, you know, eastward towards um, the Gulf of Lepanto. And in October, October 7th of 1571, these two fleets uh, clash, right? The Christian fleet and the Turkish fleet in the, really right outside the Gulf of Lepanto in this major naval battle. It was the greatest naval battle uh, at that time in history. You had 200 Christian uh, galleys. You had almost 300, a little over 300 Turkish galleys. So you had 500 ships, you know, fighting all at one time. 
and it was it was a it was a an amazing battle from multiple different perspectives. It was from uh, a naval strategy perspective. Uh, what Don Juan of Austria did was he knew that his fleet was outnumbered, uh, so he decided to create these new weaponry, if you will, these new ships. He created what are what were known as galluses. What he did was he took six special Venetian ga- galleys. And he outfitted them with um, side-mounted mounted cannons. So naval warfare at the time was uh, not dissimilar to what it was in the Roman Empire, frankly, in the Mediterranean, where you would, you know, people may know the movie Ben-Hur uh, with Charlton Heston. You got the, you know, he's down below decks and he's rowing and the guy beating the drums. Well, that's very, it's pretty much what was still happening in the 16th century. Um, where you had people below decks who had to row these galleys. You did have a mast with some sails, but if you didn't have the prevailing wind with you, then you you had to had keep all your men below deck to row. Uh, and that limited your, your ability to take out the enemy uh, ship. Because what, what they did was these galleys tried to get as close together as they could to each other. Um, you would then throw grappling hooks um, you know, on ropes from your ship to the enemy ship and try to lash your so that you could have your men, you know, swing over on, on the decks and try to take over the enemy ship. That's really how it happened. Um, but at this time, in the 16th century, there's cannon. And so you have, at the time, though, naval convention was to put all your guns, your cannon, in the bow, the front of your ship. Um, because as you were, the idea was to try to get as close to your enemy ship as possible to to uh, be able to board them. So you would shoot some some cannonballs from your bow mounted cannon, maybe disable the ship and then get close to it. Well, what Don Juan of Austria did was he took six special ships and he he uh, outfitted them with side-mounted cannon, which allowed him to put more guns on the ship than would normally be placed in the bow. He lashed, he uh, put these six ships together, he lashed them together, and he formed them kind of in the transept of a cross. And then behind these six galleys, that were the galluses that were in this transcript, uh, trans, uh, you know, beam kind of way, he had the rest of his fleet uh, behind. So literally, he kind of assembled the Christian fleet in the form of a cross. And on the other side, I yeah, on the other it. side, there's some faith. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it was it was not only um, kind of symbolic, obviously, or faithful, yeah. but it was also um, strategically, you know, from a tactical perspective, was actually very smart. Because the, the Turks always fought on land and even on sea in the form of a crescent, which for them was obviously symbolic, but also just was how they perceived their, their military tactics. It was a way to try to encircle and, and flank their enemy. So literally on some Sunday, October 7th, 1571, the cross and the crescent clashed uh, in the Mediterranean. And it was uh, at one point in the battle, so these six uh, galluses that Don Juan had out in front. They were very effective. They decimated the Turkish fleet at the very beginnings, the first few minutes of the battle. Um, so the Turks suffered heavy losses. There was one time, one moment at the battle where uh, it looked like the Christian wing, one wing of, of the fleet was going to be defeated by the Turks. And that would allow the Turkish fleet to then encircle the rest of the Christian fleet. Um, and at that point uh, of the battle, the, the prevailing winds in the Mediterranean favored the defenders, so favored the Turks. Uh, so the Christians had a lot of their men below decks rowing, and they were outnumbered uh, in terms of ships. They were outnumbered in terms of men at this particular point in the battle. But miraculously, at this very crucial moment of the battle, the prevailing winds of the Mediterranean changed. They changed in the direction of in favor of the Christians. So the Christians were allowed to then bring their, their oarsmen up on deck to be able to fight. And the Turks then lost the wind, 
So they're moving. So in order to move their ships, they had to take their soldiers or their sailors rather from the decks and put them below deck to, to row. Actually, they also had Christian slaves in their fleet as well that were rowing the ships, but it put them at a severe disadvantage. And it's interesting at that moment. So the Christian fleet up on that end, which was under the command of Admiral Doria from Spain, they were able to be successful and, and fight back that, that, uh, that Turkish attack. But what was fascinating about this is that the winds change miraculously. There's no explanation for it. I mean, they don't, they don't, that never happens in the Mediterranean. There's only one way the winds flow in the Mediterranean. They don't just change right. like that. Right. Um, but well, they changed miraculously, but, but um, in the area that they changed in Admiral Doria's flagship, he had a replica of Our Lady of Guadalupe. So the Archbishop of Mexico knew that this battle was going to happen. I mean, word had reached back to the new world. He actually had a replica of Our Lady of Guadalupe, the image uh, created. He touched the replica to the actual tilma of San Juan Diego and then sent it to Spain. Uh, and then the king, Philip II, gave that, that uh, painting to Admiral Doria to put on his flagship. So at the moment of battle, where it was the most critical moment for the Christian fleet, Our Lady, through Our Lady's intercession, the prevailing winds of the Mediterranean changed, and it brought about this, this large Christian victory. I mean, at the end of the day, there were over 200 Turkish uh, ships that were destroyed or captured. Uh, there were tens of thousands of Christian slaves that were rowing Turkish um, galleys that were freed, and the Turkish or the Christian fleet rather lost only a dozen ships. Well, yeah, um, so, what's so striking about this part of the story is that that happened in the 15, 1530s, right? With Our Lady of Guadalupe, right? And and so this is now fifteen seventy one, which is forty ish years. And yet the bot, I mean, so this is, I mean, it's incredible to think about that, that this is, this is not a huge time gap and that the body of Christ in Mexico is caring about the body of Christ in Europe and knows how crucial this battle is. And the, the specific people that had to take that to Spain, Spain to give it to this admirable admiral and, and the faith that was transmitted through the, I mean, it's very incarnational and it had real practical ramifications. So continue with the story, but I, I just, I'm just so struck by that part of the story. Yeah, uh, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, it is, it is quite amazing when you think about it that way, right? That, that it's within a generation of this, this, you know, apparition of Our Lady, um, that the, the devotion to it had already been so prevalent in Mexico that it makes its way back to Spain and it, and it, it, it serves as a very vital point in this, this very crucial battle. So at the end of the day, the, there was a huge victory for the Christians. The Turkish fleet was destroyed. The invasion of Rome that they had planned had, was postponed and then never actually took place. Um, and, you know, word of this great battle eventually um, made its way back to, to Rome. But before that, at the very day that the battle occurred, at the moment that the battle had been, victory had been secured, St. Pius V had, uh, you know, if you will, a premonition from God. I mean, he had a, a knowledge from the Lord in a miraculous way that the Christian fleet had been victorious. And, and, and tradition holds, small t tradition holds, that he was in a meeting with, um, with some of his curial officials, and he got this knowledge, and he just immediately stood up and went to the window and told everybody in the room that now was not the time for a meeting. They had to pray because the fleet had won a great victory. And they looked at him like he was crazy, right? Because word of this yeah. hadn't, how yeah. would he know? Yeah, word of this wouldn't reach Rome for another few weeks. Um, but, but he had that advanced knowledge. And so as a result of that, he actually established 
the liturgical feast day that we celebrate today, Our Lady of um, the Rosary, it was initially, he called it Our Lady of Victory because St. Pius V was, he knew that Our Lady had interceded for the Christian fleet, the fleet to her care. Every sailor, every um, soldier in the fleet was given a rosary before the fleet departed from Italy. Uh, there were chaplains scattered throughout the fleet, Dominicans and, and others, uh, to help you know with the spiritual needs of the sailors. So he he and he was a Dominican himself, Pius V. Right. So he had great devotion to the rosary and to Our Lady, and so he knew for certain that she had brought about this victory. Now he dies soon after that in 1572 or so, and then uh, his successor changes the name of the the feast day from Our Lady of Victory to what we know it today is is the feast of Our Lady of the Rosary. What do you think about that change? Because there's part of me that always wants a little disclaimer that says Our Lady of Victory to point them back to the Battle of Lepanto because I want I want our you know Catholics to know our history. Uh, so how do you how do you feel about that per- personal question? Yeah, it's a uh, well. I, I I agree with from a personal perspective that you know Our Lady of Victory would definitely um, more link the actual event to the feast day, so people would have a better recognition of what the story is. But, you know, that's a, that's, if you will, that's more of a tactical way of thinking. If you look at it from a strategic, you know, a strategic uh, perspective and from a, you know, I guess a liturgical perspective through time and through centuries, um, what, what is more important there? Is it, is it the victory of that one specific day or is it Our Lady's victory um, in, in participating, right, and participating in salvation and salvation history? Uh, and and the being this great spiritual weapon that we can use for for victory in many different ways, right? And yes, so yes. I think that the term changing it is is brings about a more universal character to the to the purpose of Our Lady, her role, and then and the special importance of the Rosary. Yeah. Well, and I'm I'm very um, pleased that um, here in Endow, uh, we our newest study is on uh, John Paul II's Apostolic Letter on the Rosary. Because one of the things that I, you know, kind of was, has, have recently been switched on is the, uh, the fact that the rosary, uh, which can tend to become over-sentimentalized and over-spiritualized, is actually a spiritual weapon. And our, our lady's apparitions throughout history and the power of the rosary has very practical, practical benefits and implications like the Battle of Lepanto. So it, I, I thought it was, you know, I, this wasn't intentional on, on Endow's end, but uh, our next study is on Catholic social teaching. And I just thought, well, that's very, very providential that in, in 2020, we're releasing, we released a study on the rosary, uh, which is so, so practically helpful. And then the next one's on Catholic social teaching, which is, you know, every time she's appearing, she's saying something about civil society in the public square. And we, we really need that right now. <laughs> so looking, looking, yeah, looking back, our endowed team was like, Oh, that was like, like we planned it. Um, but, and we did plan it, but not, not with that kind of spiritual lens in mind. Um, I, I tangent historical tangent. I, I Pius the, uh, St. Pius the fifth, uh, you mentioned was a Dominican. And isn't that the reason why the Pope wears a Dominican garb? Isn't it because of him? Yes, yeah. The, the, where is the white color? Yeah, before that, it had been kind of wear kind of what you want. But that since then, yeah, since the 16th century, at least, it's been traditional for the Pope to wear white. Yeah. Dress like a Dominican. Yeah, he, he maintained that. He continued to live as a Dominican, even though he was Pope. Right? He lived very simply and 
and uh, was very religious, you know, in terms of his, his life. Um, he was a pious pious, I like to say, right? So he was. <laughs> well, and then maybe is, is the, 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 his uh, papal successors go, you know, he's easily identifiable and the white will stick to it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I think that's kind of fun. I have it in my brain, so maybe you can correct this if it's wrong, that Pius V prayed the rosary in Santa Maria Sopra Minerva in that church in Rome. Is that correct, Professor? I don't know for certain. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's possible. I don't know. I'll, yeah. have, I'll, have but, to, I'll have to verify that, but I think that's true, yeah. which, it, you know, okay. anybody playing their Roman holidays uh, post-COVID, you know, th- think of Battle of Lepanto and Pius, the, Pius V and... Uh, when you visit Santa Maria Sopra Minerva in Rome. But um, anyway, any, uh, gosh, there's so much I want to talk to you about, but you know, today's the day we celebrate the Battle of Lepanto, which I think Catholics and Catholic families all over the world should be celebrating and should know about. And so I hope you do something celebrate because it really did save Europe. This battle. It did. Yeah. I mean, it was, it did. It was, it saved, you know, it stopped the, the Turkish invasion, uh, go to Rome and to try to, to, to take Rome and to, and to even take, you know, so, I mean, it had a huge impact on, on who had control of the Mediterranean. So subsequent to that, um, you know, which maybe we'll talk about in the future podcast is, is that the Ottomans focus their, their military efforts now more on the land than on the sea. I mean, they rebuild their fleet about a year or two after um, Lepanto, but they don't put as much of an effort or as much of a strategic focus or, or, you know, on trying to control the Mediterranean anymore. They leave that as kind of a Christian lake, so to speak. I mean, within certain areas, they still had influence over certain parts of the Mediterranean, but, but the, the, the desire or the, the plan with which to try to invade Europe from the sea, from the Mediterranean, uh, was, was no longer, um, uh, you know, it was no longer a focus of the, the Ottoman Turks, and so they never, when they never again attempted that. So it did, from that perspective, definitively save Christendom. And in one way, you mentioned like how can Catholics celebrate this this particular day, and um, you know, in, in a unique way, and remember this story. So there's a great poem that's written by G.K. Chesterton, uh, known as uh, that's not very familiar. Most people don't know of it. But they know a lot of Chesterton's writings or some of the other writings, but they're not as familiar with his poem. But a few years ago, Ignatius Press published a, a copy of it, so you can still pick it up there. Um, and we had a, a tradition in our family. We still try to do it occasionally, but with now with all the kids getting older and, and plans moving all over the I'm place. I'm sure all and, your kids know about the Battle of Lepanto. Oh, they know, they know, they know the battle. <laughs> but what we used to do is we used to sit down at dinner on, on that night of October 7th, and after dinner I would read the poem of Lepanto to my kids so that they would know uh, the story and have at least the the beauty of Chesterton's words associated with it. The rest of them is, but uh, but they definitely know the story. Yeah, so wow. it's you know. that's, that's great. Well, I'll link that to the show notes. So anyone anyone listening want to start that tradition in their in their homes and families? Uh, I think it's a great idea. So anything else we should talk about with the Battle of Lepanto before we say goodbye today? No, I think that's, I think we, we covered it well. So, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much uh, for talking about the Battle of Lepanto today. Uh, maybe you'll, I don't know if you'll uh, be doing that this, this year, but I certainly, I certainly will. I'm going to pull that off my shelf because I, I have it from your class, Professor. If this episode was helpful for you, I would love it if you'd share it with your friends. I would also love to hear your comments and feedback. So please email me at simone.riscala at endowgroups.org or feel free to reach out to us on any of our social media platforms. 
Remember, you are the heart of Endow.